we do have a long way to go to get all those people registered of voting age. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. Hello and welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. This is the Sniffles and Flu edition with less than just a week before the midterms. On Dead Men Don't Vote, we aim to make sense out of election administration news during this volatile period from debunking conspiracy theories to demystifying the election process and to generally explaining the why and the how of American elections. I'm Royfield Brown, an American in training who unfortunately is a little ill this week, but it's my job to bring you brisk and brief overview of election administration news from around this glorious nation. As normal, I'll be speaking to subject matter experts from OSET about pieces of election news and their significance on the elections and democracy that have made the national press. Now, with tissues at the ready, let's jump right in. Arizona Secretary of State tonight says she's sent additional reports of potential voter intimidation to the state's attorney general's office and the federal justice department. Outside an early ballot drop box in Mesa, Arizona, two men armed, wearing tactical gear, watching voters, a vigil taking place over multiple nights. One woman, a Phoenix area grandmother, decided to confront them. Why did you decide to go out there? I'm standing up and pushing back against those people and standing up for everybody's right to vote without fear of uh, retaliation or any kind of intimidation. Two outdoor ballot drop boxes in Maricopa County have become an election flashpoint. Around the clock, so-called ballot watchers are camped out at another drop box in downtown Phoenix. They're photographing voters. And already, these actions are impacting how voters feel. From AZ Central, ballot drop box observers face lawsuits from voting rights groups by Sasha Hupka. Several voting rights groups are asking federal judges to stop ballot box observers from staking out Arizona voting locations. To help us unpack this piece, we speak to Dana Debravar from OSET, who is the ex-Travis County clerk. She served from 1987 to January 2022. Hello, Dana Debravar. It's a good job that we're doing this via the wonder of the internet, because if I was close to you, I'd be giving you the flu right now. How are you today? I'm trying to stay well through the election. There's an article which I found on Arizona Central. Ballot drop box observers face lawsuits from voting rights groups. Okay, let's say that I'm a regular American. That to me sounds like these people who are observing these ballot boxes are doing their civic duty. They're just making sure that no malfeasance, nothing iffy or dodgy is happening. Why is that wrong? Well, you know, if all they were doing was standing close by to make sure nobody was putting something icky in the ballot box or something like that, then it would be perfectly reasonable for people to just watch what was going on. But that's not what they're doing. What they're doing is, is they're standing around, some of them armed with cell phones and cameras, and they're taking photographs of normal voters putting their their single ballot in the ballot box and then following them back to their cars and taking snapshots of their license plates. Now, what does that have to do with making sure election is the election is free and fair? 
And I have to say that the, the update from Arizona is, thank goodness, a judge took a look at that case because because the first time through, the judge said, no, they've got every right to stand out there and take pictures and do whatever they please. Well, then the they they went back before the judge again, and and the voters explained, no, they they're not just standing around; they're intimidating us. They're deliberately trying to make us feel watched and uncomfortable. And when the judge heard the stories of the other voters and what had actually happened to them, the judge came back with restrictions. So the update on the Arizona story is they can't do that. They can go up to within 50 feet of the ballot box. Otherwise, they have to stand back and they are not allowed to film or take photographs of the voters and certainly not of their cars and their license plates. So now we're talking about a reasonable situation where it's perfectly fine if somebody wants to go and, you know, stand all day and watch a drop box. That's that's a reasonable behavior. The other behavior was excessive and deliberately intimidating. Do we have any idea as to how long they were doing this for? Since the beginning of early voting, and Arizona has a pretty lengthy early voting period. I forget exactly what the what the dates are. Okay, and and do we know which areas of Arizona they were doing this? Were they doing this in ones which are heavily minority, etc.? Were they specifically targeting specific areas in Arizona, or was this blanket throughout the whole of the state? No, I don't believe it was blanket throughout the state because the judge specifically noted the Phoenix area, some in Mesa, and then a county all the way down on the border, one of those counties. And I think it does have a high minority population. Gotcha. So what do we know about the group Clean Elections USA? They were behind this. How long have they been in existence? What do we need to know about them? Well, they haven't been around very long. The organizer of this group is a a former member of other right-wing organizations like Oath Keepers. She wants this her, her group to be intimidating, which is a surprise considering she claims that she only wants to just make sure elections are done fairly and correctly. Well, the problem is, is that she's also an election denier. She's also one of those people who's been out there peddling the lies for the last two years, saying that the 2020 election was fraudulent and stolen, when we all know, in fact, it was the the cleanest and most secure election probably ever conducted by this country. So, so the good news is that a judge has actually ruled against them. They need to be 50 foot away and cannot record by any electronic means anybody who drops off their vote into a ballot box. Correct. And and the thing about it is, is that the law in most states, and I'm going to assume Arizona is the case, you can't go inside a polling place and snap photos of voters. So it's really no different at all. You have the right to the privacy of your ballot and the privacy of your person when you're voting. Thank you, Dana Debrava. See, that was super simple. So it's always easy with you. Now I'm going to go back to bed. (laughs) (laughs) I I hope you think working with me is easy. From governing.com, why we need to take the partisanship out of certifying elections by Kevin Johnson. Michigan voters have an opportunity to fix a system that can weaponize the process. Given today's hyper-partisan climate, other states should follow its lead. 
why we need to take the partisanship out of elections. Today, I'm speaking to Gregory Miller from OSET about this proposal, which is in front of Michigan voters, specifically a proposal called Proposal 2. Greg, why is this so significant? Well, I think that the the challenge that we have is our democracy is unique in the world in that we do not have separate election management boards or bodies, so-called EMBs, administering our elections. Elections historically here have allowed a partisanship to insert itself in the process by everything from, from electing state secretaries and election chiefs to political appointments in the administration thereof. So I think that there's a post-2020, it's obvious that we need to find a way to minimize the impact of partisanship in the process of election results, reporting, certification, audits, et cetera. Specifically, Proposal 2 says a constitutional amendment initiative before voters, or at least I've taken this line actually from the article, that calls for several changes to the state's elections, including adding early voting, facilitating voting by mail, etc., and allowing a voter without ID to cast a ballot after signing an affidavit. But the most important change lies in those two provisions to to clarify the certifications of results, which is what you've kind of mentioned before. Because as you've said, America is very rare in terms of countries that do certified selections this way, that it's a partisan thing. Clearly, we need a way to protect election certification from being politicized, but at the same time, providing a proper avenue for, for election disputes. And I think that's the goal and objective of, of this project and this initiative, because this is kind of a historical element. And I always like to remind people that, that structurally, there are two articles and seven amendments to the United States Constitution that make it clear that election administration is a state's matter with a federal interest, to be sure, but it's a state's matter. And so every state has their own way of doing things. And these political appointments and these processes of elections observers and et cetera are embedded in in the history of each state. And states are slowly recognizing post-2020 that to reduce the chaos, we've got to reform how we do that. The last one I'll just bring to your attention, it says this is the flaw that Michigan voters can fix, which is widespread throughout the US. The Election Reformers Network analysis released in September found that 39 states gave party appointed boards or partisan elected officials exclusive authority over certification at the state level. So would you see that we, you know, maybe in the next four to six years, we're going to see a slow drift in terms of other American states following the Michigan model? We can only hope. I'm not convinced that we're going to see a rush to legislation to try to clean these things up, particularly if we see a shift to a a government uh, led by those who have a very different view on the value of of truly free and fair elections in, in a democratic manner. I'm guarded in my optimism about how much widespread change we can expect at a state level if Unfortunately, we do have the chaos manufactured and otherwise that we are sadly forecasting here for a period of time after November 8th. It may well draw state governments to realize that they have to accelerate their thinking and and reformation of, of these regulations. Greg, thank you for coming on to Dead Men Don't Vote. Thank you for having me. From Politico, Biden admin set to warn about threats to nation's election infrastructure by Aaron Banco and Eric Geller. Top Biden national security officials are tracking multiple threats to the nation's election security infrastructure ahead of the midterms and are set to issue warnings, including in an internal intelligence bulletin this week, according to two people familiar with the matter. 
To discuss this article, I spoke to Chief Technology Officer John Sebes of the Trust the Vote Project and OSET. So connected to our earlier piece, I'm now speaking to OSET's John Sebes. The report says that the Biden administration is set to warn about threats to the nation's election infrastructure. John, this article fundamentally says there are two threats to the United States and its election infrastructure. Number one, domestic, and then number two, cyber. Which should we be most concerned about? Well, I think both concerns are really important to keep in mind. And I'm a little disappointed with the way that article was written, because we have both domestic threats and foreign threats, and we have both cyber threats and people threats. So it's really all four combinations. I'll focus on the people part first, Mm -hmm. because that's really about misinformation and disinformation. So in some of the government briefings that we're hearing now, they're reminding us, as we should know for many, many years, that we have nation state adversaries that seek to meddle in the U.S. elections process by trafficking in disinformation and misinformation. So that's been going on for quite a while. Obviously, people remember 2016 is sort of the year where that really got very noticeable with broad awareness. But I think what's really, really different now is that those disinformation operators have an enormous amount of domestically produced misinformation floating around, including from candidates for public office, including candidates for heads of elections in states. Right. So we're giving this enormous gift to our nation state adversaries who who are doing disinformation operations where they barely have to make up anything new. As a matter of fact, it would be hard for them to make up some stuff that's wilder than what's already out there. Gotcha. That's probably more important than considering domestic disinformation operations, meaning the possibility that a political party or candidate organization is on purpose putting out disinformation with the intent of trying to get people to not vote or whatever. I think that's less important because the the misinformation that's already out there, you know, well-meaning or perhaps kooky people just spinning, spinning these theories, that's already going to have all the effect that, that, that it would have, whether it's accidental misinformation or intentional disinformation. So there, on the info side, I would, I would be more concerned about nation-state operators because of their significant resources. Then on the cyber side, we got both domestic and foreign. We traditionally wor- worry more about foreign cyber actors because th- these nation-state adversaries have really significant resources and they're not operating in the United States where they can be easily criminally liable. So that's, that's a reason to be more concerned about that. But that's a traditional view. And here's one thing that's different for this election cycle. We now have people who are actively concerned about cyber issues in the domestic context because we have things like, for example, you know, the Coffee County, Georgia litigation where people busted into the elections offices seemingly with the help of the election staff to mess with the computers there for reasons that are still unclear. So that's brand new, this cycle. Same thing with Mesa County, Colorado, with the elections clearly helping cyber operators and being indicted for a felony or two. That's new, this cycle. And that's something that I think we need to pay just as much attention to as to, you know, CISA alerting us that 
you know, some state voter registration systems have been attacked by foreign sources like they were in, in 2016. Both of those things, I think, are really notable. So we have these two specific different types of threats, but there is some overlap, as you explained. Do you believe that we have the resources to confront them both? No, absolutely not. And for the foreseeable future, we never will. That applies to the situation where we're looking at foreign nation state cyber actors um, trying to conduct cyber attacks on U.S. election infrastructure. Their first targets several years ago were state-run voter registration systems, and a lot of attention has been paid to them since then to harden them for every state to get help from DHS, CISA. That's great. No system is perfect, but I think all the appropriate measures are being taken there. And But there's only 50 plus of them, whereas there are thousands and thousands of local elections offices, including over half of them that are like a one or two person operation. And there's simply no hope that if those are targeted by nation state cyber actors, that they'll have any reasonable defense. That sort of, you know, asymmetric information warfare is just a, a fact of life that we've got now. And there's no uh, no plan to, to address that because of the fundamentally decentralized nature of our election system. The article ends by saying that CISA officials consider misinformation and disinformation the biggest threats to the midterms given how easy it is for malicious actors to throw mud into the water. What strategy should we put in place for the medium to long term to counter mis- and disinformation? Well, ultimately, it I believe it becomes a responsibility of election officials themselves to be extremely aggressive, uh, if that's the right word, in uh, public relations and public information and voter education about how elections actually work and how what the real threats are and what the what the fake threats are. In the medium term, that might be feasible. But again, we, we're just looking at significantly underfunded elections offices who keep being asked to do more and more things without really much increase in money. And conducting public awareness campaigns is not a skill set that many local elections offices have. May, some state offices maybe don't. Building that skill requires funding. So it might be possible in the medium term. In the long term, it's fundamentally required because like right now today, you know, we can say, here's the three or four main elements of the big lie as it applies today. You know, voting machines are not rigged. There's the, they're not connected to the internet. They don't send their votes over to some other country to be counted. No, no, no. Here's how election officials really work. And we can pull out our little walled garden, you know, graphic that we, that we use for that. You can do the same thing about there is no rampant voter fraud and you can pull out the stats around that. And, and the same for, you know, all of the top three, four, five parts of the big lie about this election. Absentee voting is fundamentally insecure is another one. But in the medium term, it requires getting ahead of these viral memes that start floating around in the election. Because once you have, you know, in one particular state of people, you know, spreading the, the misinformation to each other that, you know, there's tons of illegal immigrants being busted in and voting. Once that gets rolling, it's really hard to stop. I mean, a lie can circle the, the globe, you know, twice before the truth can get its boots on. So it really has to be an off election cycle activity to get ahead of these various lies. And it's going to be a real challenge and it's going to require funding. However, it is tractable. It's a lot more tractable than, you know, getting a full-time cyber defender person at every one of the thousands of county election offices in the country. 
Gotcha. Thank you, for John Sebes, for coming on to Dead Men Don't Vote. Election Day is seven weeks out, and Proposal 2 will be on the ballot. But what does that entail, and what do voters need to know about it? Lauren Edwards joins us live in the control room to break down what's in it. Proposal 2, or Prop 2, as it's been called by many people, it's going to be on the ballot for the November 8th election. But I can tell you not everyone is applauding their efforts going to make it so, one, the Constitution will state that you never have to show an ID to vote ever again. Jeffrey Litton of Secure My Vote, the main group in opposition to Prop 2, says people should need a state ID or a social security number in order to vote. He says the group, too, wants a safe and secure election. However, when it comes to Prop 2, they say you've got to read the fine print. Any private individual, billionaire, corporate, corporation, special interest, any of them can donate as much money to any clerk in the state. He says the group, which was formed in 2021 and is nonpartisan, believes this should not be allowed. From Wisconsin Examiner, referenda ask voters if election age should be outlawed by Eric Gunn. Voters in four Wisconsin counties will be asked in November whether the state should ban private grants to help local communities with the cost of running elections. Jenny Coulter is the Senior Director of Stakeholder Relations and Social Media at OSET. Jenny, one thing that's really struck me in this article was that Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, granted $350 million to support America's election infrastructure. That is a lot of money. I think it depends on the jurisdiction, but for rural jurisdictions or for, in particular, I think Midwestern jurisdictions, Yes, the funding situation can be extremely dire, particularly in Wisconsin, where there are 100 or 1,835 small municipal jurisdictions all competing for funding. So that doesn't really leave a lot for extras or even things that are vitally important. I understand that optics wise, yes, this, you know, any type of private grant people are going to be suspicious about. But that's certainly not the only area of government where private grants have occurred. For example, most of the parks around where I live are supported by very generously by the Barnett family, which is a part of the publics. Gotcha. But this then does leave people then to suspect that there is some level of undue influence. Now, I must admit, as a Brit and American in training, this I can't quite see it. But please tell me, what is the objection? Why would a grant, whether it's $350 million or a few thousand dollars, potentially, would some people say that is aiding democratic turnout? I'm not exactly sure why people automatically assume that that would be the case. I I think that there are jurisdictions that desperately need the funding. And when they do get a grant, even if it's by a more liberal-leaning organization, it's to get things like polling places or protective equipment for your poll workers. And not all your poll workers are going to be left-leaning. Some of them are going to be on the right. Some of them are going to be somewhere in the middle. So all of the voters benefit from this grant. At some point, there's the conservative standpoint that you have to make do with what you have, and funding from outside sources will automatically come with strings attached. But be that as it may, the pandemic really did hit a lot of places extremely hard. And the alternative was either raising taxes, pushing the state to let out more money, or to have voters not get served in the way that they need and deserve. 
to, to back up your point there, further on in the article, it has said that 111 municipalities told the Wisconsin Elections Commission that they had to close at least one polling station because they had too few poll workers. And another 126 reported as having to consolidate polling stations uh, due to dwindling personnel. So it seems to me that there is a like a treble whammy that, number one, there isn't enough funds. Number two, the election administration sector is losing workers and confidence of the American people, at least some Americans. What I thought was really interesting was that this referendum is going to take place in four jurisdictions to see whether aid should be outlawed. But it was kind of subtly reworded in the one. So if I go to the first, and I'll try try and do my best to read this out. Should the state of Wisconsin prohibit election officials from soliciting or using private funds, technology or services from special interest groups, people or other private entities for the purpose of administering elections and referendums? And then the second one, which is only in one jurisdiction, said should the Wisconsin legislature prepare and place on the statewide ballot a constitutional amendment prohibiting non-governmental entities and other individual other than election college designated by law from funding, managing or performing any task in election administration? So I've just about got through that. What is the subtle difference between those two in terms of outcomes, would you say? I think the first question, I thought it was interesting that they used the word solicit. So obviously, there's there's going to be the suspicion that any, any municipality or jurisdiction that actively asks for private funding is going to be labeled as suspect, which I can understand where the optics would be. But again, unless you're willing to raise taxes or the state's willing to shell out enough money for each jurisdiction, that's something that jurisdictions may be tempted to ask for. The second one, I think, would be, I think that there's a misconception that this is entirely about turnout. This is about running the election, which has to, which you can't just not have the election. That's something that's required by law. And we want this, if one of the things about funding is because again, these small jurisdictions are competing for, you know, a relatively small piece of the pie funding wise. I think that the referendum questions are losing sight of the fact that elections cost money and nobody does this for free. What is going to be the outcome then? Because if, let's say, Wisconsin and, and its counties are not getting enough money to run its an infrastructure correctly, are then proponents of this bill saying there should be more state funding? Because that isn't made explicit within the article. It seems to me that there is somewhat of a crisis here, but there is no real solution. I honestly think that if you, if I were to write my own referendum about this subject, I think government should have the right of first refusal since the government is ultimately the tax revenue that they collect is what funds election departments. And if the tax collectors are not collecting enough money, that's, you know, the state and municipalities are going to have to chip in. And if they're not doing that, I think that maybe a poison pill in that public or that private funding is allowed in the case of a refusal or lack of funding from the, the jurisdiction itself or from state and federal government. 
I do have an idea, but I don't think anybody would ever go for it. But I'm tired of seeing politicians who drop out of a race use their campaign funds as a slush fund. I think that if you drop out of the race, anything left in your campaign money that after everything, anything's been returned to the donors, I think the rest of that should go into a fund that funds election administration. That sounds like a fantastic idea. Maybe you should campaign on, on that platform. Oh, it would get me skinned alive. So with literally days before the midterms, I'd like to thank John Sebes, Dana Debovar, Jenya Coulter and Gregory Miller for joining me on this week's episode. And of course, as always, we thank Frame Masters for reading out our headlines. We here at OSEP believe in a participatory democracy. And this is what this podcast is too. So we need you to participate. You can do that by emailing me at Royfield, which is spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at osetinstitute.org. And we'll include your message on a future episode. You can find us at trustthevote.org forward slash podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at trustthevote or at deadmendon'tvote. Keep listening, spread the word about us and the Trust the Vote project, and of course, do not forget to vote. Because the midterms are almost here. Dead Men Don't Vote is supported by the team at the Trust the Vote project. 